Hello and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey and I'm thrilled to be back this Friday co-hosting with Jessica Burbank. We're back in action. I bet they thought they'd seen the last of us. <laughs> Never. We've got a lot of news to get into today. <laughs> So let's go ahead and get started. G7 nations unveiled a substantial sanctions package against Russia today at the group summit in Hiroshima, Japan. This new package will include blacklisting 300 individuals, entities, vessels and aircraft across Europe, the Middle East and Asia, as well as expanded authority to target sectors of the Russian economy, quote, key to its military industrial complex, a senior administration official said, and to impose new bans to prevent Russia from benefiting from our services. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to make an in-person visit to the summit on Sunday. G7 leaders reiterated their support for Ukraine after a closed-door meeting, stating, quote, We, the leaders of the G7, reaffirmed our commitment to stand together against Russia's illegal, unjustifiable, and unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. This comes just as the Department of Defense revealed it has significantly reduced its estimate of the value of weapons it has sent to Ukraine, freeing up at least $3 billion to help fund the war. Joining us now to weigh in is White House reporter at The Hill, Brett Samuels. Brett, thank you so much for joining us this morning. On these sanctions, what makes these different from past sanctions packages, and what effect are these G7 leaders hoping that these will have on the war in Ukraine? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, you know, obviously sort of a significant moment to be rolling out these sanctions at the G7 with all these leaders in one place in Japan. Um, it sort of builds on the sanctions we've already seen over the past year plus where the U.S. and allies are, you know, targeting targeting the Russian economy, targeting these different sectors, whether it be you know, minerals or uh, gas and oil, these sort of different sectors that uh, sort of help fund the Russian war effort in Ukraine. Um, so this is just sort of building on that, obviously adding various entities and people to that. Uh, but certainly I think it's significant that they're doing this at the G7 with all these leaders together. As you mentioned, President Zelensky set to join them. Um, you know, sort of this, this show of unity, this show of force that even more than a year later, um, this, this group of countries is still kind of trying to show that they're still united in this effort, still going to keep putting pressure on Russia where they can. When it comes to, to sanctioning Russia, it's been the case in the past, I think of foreign correspondent Stephen Kinzer going to Russia and speaking with, with a waiter. And uh, they were talking about all of the great cheese that they have that is now Russian-made cheese, which Russia didn't always make cheese. They would import it from Europe. But because of the sanctions, Russia became quite good at cheese making. So it's kind of this example of, of how sometimes sanctions can make Russia a little bit more self-reliant and force them to grow their economy in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. Do you think that that could be a potential unintended consequence of these sanctions? Yeah, it definitely could be. You know, uh, the Biden administration and other folks talked about sort of early on in this effort, uh, this idea of unintended consequences with, with sanctions, um, this idea that maybe uh, sort of the flip side of that, that that you may be inadvertently punishing, you know, Russian workers and folks who did not necessarily support Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, but that these sanctions target their their sort of economic sector that they work in. So you know, there's that side of it. There's the flip side that you mentioned, this idea that Russia sort of adapts over time so that these sanctions aren't quite as effective or aren't as powerful because Russia is figuring out ways to be self-reliant or to work around, um, you know, its relationship, relationships with Europe or, or other nations. So certainly there are this, 
this potential for unintended consequences. But at this point, the Biden administration and their allies have been sort of steadfast and adamant that sanctions are the best way to sort of squeeze Russia's economy and, and ultimately grind down sort of the war effort and the funding for that. Brett, I'm hoping you can give us some more details on this accounting error that somehow freed up $3 billion. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it does seem a little bit convenient. It's no secret that Ukraine um, has a history of corruption. So do we have a better sense of where exactly this money was found in the books? Yeah, so Biden officials have basically said, you know, that this was just an accounting error that was discovered you know, several weeks ago, actually, but now it's just coming to light now. Um, and there's sort of a couple different ways that you could look at it and a couple different ways that I think this will play out in the coming days as as we learn more about it and as as folks, you know, pay more attention to it, which is on the one hand, you know, there's this argument that, uh, you know, we have $3 billion more than we thought we did to help fund the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, so that should put folks at ease who are worried about the amount of money that, that we're spending on aiding Ukraine. But the flip side of that is there's already, I think, a lot of skepticism, certainly in the House with Republicans, about how much money is being spent uh, to help Ukraine, about whether all that money is being properly accounted for. And I think this idea that, you know, here's $3 billion that was found just through some poor accounting or through a bookkeeping error, uh, you know, that that's just going to fuel some of the skepticism and some of the suspicion, I think, among lawmakers and others who wonder whether the U.S. is spending too much money or needs to be spending more money to help Ukraine in this war effort. Yeah, it sounds like they they did some kind of calculation, right? If we were to buy X, Y, and Z weapons and equipment uh, and we paid the price as if it were brand new equipment, then it would be you know valued at X. But instead, now they're saying, well, let's look at what the sale price would be, and that's a difference of $3 billion. I don't know, to me, when I think about the Pentagon not passing audits in many years, it's not believable to me. Uh, but do you think it's it's right at all to be speculating about this? Yeah, you know, at this point, it seems like the Pentagon is, is chalking this up to sort of a bookkeeping error, to an accounting error, like you said. Uh, they sort of overestimated the cost of the weapons that they were sending. Um, so that's what we've heard from the Pentagon so far. Certainly, I would expect, you know, with the House House Republicans being in a majority there, that, that we'll have some lawmakers looking to dig into this a bit more, um, certainly given already sort of the skepticism that some of them have about about how much money is being spent to uh, to aid Ukraine with military equipment. Is there any indication that these G7 leaders are going to be talking about Russia in regards to energy? Because Germany, of course, had issues last year with becoming reliant on Russian gas and oil for a period of time due to its sort of all-in approach to um, green energy policy. What is the energy discussion looking like in these preliminary talks? Yeah, so, you know, obviously the Biden administration has, has pushed this idea that that climate change and energy consumption is going to be a big topic for G7 leaders. Uh, you know, in a broad sense, this idea of being less reliant on uh, you know these different sources of energy. And I think one of one of the big issues at the center of that is is like you mentioned, Amber, this idea that Germany, especially, but other European countries uh, have been very reliant on uh, on Russia for its energy. You know, through pipelines. Um, so certainly I think it will come up in those conversations, but I think the Biden administration certainly wants to promote this idea of, you know, transitioning to more renewable sources of energy, to more climate friendly 
uh, sources of energy. So, uh, but certainly it's hard to talk about that without addressing sort of the elephant in the room, this idea of reliance on, on Russian energy for certain European countries. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Are you expecting the other G7 countries to join in on the sanctions? Because it seems that these are mostly, you know, at the hands of the, the United States. And it seems that announcing them at this conference is intended to put pressure on the other G7 countries to join in. Is that your read on the situation? Right. So, so what we've seen so far is the United States announcing these sanctions. And we have seen from, from the G7 leaders this sort of joint statement. Um, in which they laid out support for Ukraine, in which they vowed to continue pressuring Russia to end its war in Ukraine. Um, so I would expect that we'll see some action, certainly from from G7 leaders, because you know they want to promote this united front. They don't want to suggest that there are cracks in this alliance. Um, but we are still waiting to see. I think the specifics of whether uh, these other countries will go as far as the U.S., whether they will match all of these sanctions. Um, or how specifically they'll play out. But certainly that bears watching um, just to see, you know, because I think Russia is certainly looking for kind of any cracks or any signs of weakening uh, in this alliance. Thank you so much, Brett Samuels, White House reporter with The Hill. We appreciate you talking about this with us. More rising after this. Yesterday, the House Subcommittee on Federal Government Weaponization, chaired by Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, brought forth witnesses who alleged they were victims of retaliation for expressing concern over alleged politicization and weaponization of the FBI. They've come under fire from Democrats who say they are not real whistleblowers. Journalistic, journalist Michael Schellenberger wrote about the hearing, saying, FBI says it won't release January 6th surveillance video because it would show too many undercover government agents and informants. The FBI whistleblowers who testified before Congress today are not actually whistleblowers, say the FBI and Democrats. Rather, they are disloyal Americans who undermined investigations into the January 6th riot at the Capitol building in D.C. Here's MSNBC's Nicole Wallace on the matter. Harry, what does it say that Republicans are trying to misappropriate the whistleblower term? I mean, there's always a more sinister motive. They are reappropriating the term whistleblower after doing everything they could to endanger the life of the actual whistleblower that led to Donald Trump's first impeachment. Um, and they are standing by people who are at a minimum, and again, it's not in dispute, guilty of insubordination, of refusing to carry out a court-approved search. Yeah, I mean, there is a political farce here, and it even extends to the level of language and the complete twisting and bastardization of terms we accept and that are important. A point that hasn't been uh, raised, but was a big uh, part of the uh, back and forth in the committee, uh, the testimony that this guy gave, Alan, that, that uh, Agent Allen gave to the Republicans, he refused to provide to the Democrats. He said, I'm not comfortable. Goldman had a field day with Jordan saying he doesn't get to decide there are rules here and again their whistleblowers want their information to come out but this in in fact you know exposed them as just being a political operative at yesterday's hearing democratic congressman dan goldman elicited from the witness that they were paid by cash patel who in goldman's words is a political hack for donald trump under investigation by the doj for leaking classified information here's that exchange Mr. Boyle, do you know who Cash Patel is? I do. 
Uh, have you received any money from Cash Patel or his organization? I have. Uh, Mr. Friend, what about you? Are you? Do you know Cash Patel as well? Uh, yes. And did you receive any money from Cash Patel? Yes, he gave me a donation last November. A donation? Yes. Are you a charitable organization? I was an unpaid, indefinitely suspended man trying to feed his family, and he reached out to me and said he wanted to give me uh, a donation. Amber, what do you make of this? I mean, it seems to me that uh, there's some contention over whether or not these two are considered whistleblowers at all. But it seems to me that this is exposing a lot of what the FBI has up, been up to for the past, I don't know, better half of a century, which is spying on their own citizens. And, and clearly the FBI has some political motives within the country. I don't know if these two are, are nonpartisan actors in it all, but it's definitely showing some fracturing between the people's trust in government and what the FBI has been up to, which I think is healthy. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's ridiculous that people are still having to basically claw for information about the January 6th riots. I mean, if this was as big of a watershed moment in our country's history as the Democrats say it was, then why don't they want every bit of information to come out, including the potential role that the FBI played in this? According to this report from Michael Schellenberg, there were anywhere between 100 to 200 undercover agents at the riot that day. And I think the FBI needs to explain why, if there were that many people, uh, that many agents in the crowd that day, why were they just going along with it rather than trying to stop it from occurring? Um, they claimed that this was obviously a safety and security threat to members of Congress, and yet they s seemingly had some ability to try to prevent this from happening, and they didn't do that. And it's absurd to me that we have these whistleblowers who are willing to share this information about how many people were there that day, what the FBI's role was, and Democrats and our national security apparatuses want to prevent that from happening. Yeah, like I can see a world where it's absolutely the case that we had these FBI agents, these undercovers with the Fed at the January 6th uh, insurrection, and they were in the crowd and, and not doing enough. And there were so many of them that if, if you were familiar with the matter, you'd be able to point them out if we release the footage like that to me is highly suspicious. But I do think it's also true uh, that if you're a member of the GOP and you're picking people to testify in this hearing, these folks that have some ties to members of, of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign, Cash Patel, and they've exchanged money with them, that maybe you wouldn't expect these folks to be, I don't know, the uh, an impartial witness who's speaking solely to what the FBI has been up to. They might have some kind of agenda to say, you know what, uh, this whole January 6th thing was put on by the FBI, right? Taking that kind of money from Donald Trump, really wanting him to seem like he didn't have a role in inciting the insurrection. I think both of those things can be true at once here. Yeah, I kind of get the sense from uh, one of the answers there that maybe they had a GoFundMe or a Give, Send, Go set up and Cash Patel happened to donate to it. I don't think it's quite as nefarious as Daniel Goldman was trying to make it out to be. And by every measure, these guys have a record of being in service to their country. I think one is a Marine, one served as an FBI special agent for almost a decade. So these guys are not you know, people who just 
were at the FBI on January 6th and then crawled out of the woodwork to try to debunk the narrative that was coming from the left, it seems like they have had a long history of good work in that agency and were unfairly retaliated against. I mean, the uh, FBI, for example, says that they were suspended because they posed a national security threat. I mean, are you really going to tell me that a Marine was somehow working against the country within the FBI because he wanted to share information about what happened on January 6th? It just seems like a lot of excuses and not a whole lot of evidence. Yeah, it seems to me that it's just bringing up the conversation again. I mean, we already had the January 6th committee discuss what happened that day in great detail, many hearings where they hashed all of that out. Now we're having to do it again. This is supposed to be a, a committee on the operations of just, just the FBI, this hearing rather. And what we're getting out of it is rehashing a lot of the things that were discussed when we had the January 6th hearing, which wasn't tuned into by a lot of Trump supporters because it was framed as, as this witch hunt, as this kangaroo court. And it really hurts our democratic process when what we're supposed to be doing here is really investigate how much surveillance is happening of, of American citizens, how much interference is coming from the FBI on the political ongoings within our country. That's what the focus of this committee hearing should be. And of course, it's become absurdly politicized to a degree where now we're rehashing watching uh, the, the January 6th event. And so that's really concerning. Of course, there were members of the FBI that were there. I think now that this has come up and now that it's been exposed with that really damning statement that there were hundreds of, of undercover folks at January 6th, that's opening a whole new can of worms. Why didn't that come out during the, the January 6th hearing? And I think that's what happens when you have such partisan leaders of these hearings organizing what's supposed to happen within them because you have members uh, of, of the House and the Senate who are Democrats who are saying it's a big problem that we didn't have a say in picking who, who these folks coming and testifying would be. It's like, get it together. This is about what's happening in our country, not about fighting for partisan ends here. It's kind of ironic, too, that the Democrats would say that, considering the January 6th committee was basically handpicked by Nancy Pelosi and Republicans weren't even allowed to pick who they wanted on the committee. They didn't have the same level of subpoena powers that the Democrats had. That's why people were saying that that was a sham committee, a sham investigation. But to me, this just is indicative of further politicization within our intelligence community. I mean, the FBI has spent its time going into pro-lifers' houses with their children present and arresting them because they protested at abortion clinics, creating threat tags for parents who were protesting at school board meetings, clearly just not using their resources in ways that are actually helpful for national security and instead targeting Americans who are just exercising their First Amendment rights. Yeah, I think there's another element here where it's like, I think back to, I don't know, the move bombing and the times where the FBI took incredibly violent action against our citizens uh, that were not posing a particularly large threat against any other citizens or any threat for that matter. I think about those situations, but I also think about the FBI's role in investigating serial killers and trying to assess what was going on in our country when we saw the rise of serial killers and people weren't killing because of motive, means, and opportunity like they traditionally saw when they investigated. Uh, murders and this kind of criminality, then people were killing strangers. Now we have this problem of mass shooters and the FBI 
oftentimes receiving tips about how these individuals were dangerous, had political motivations, had extensive planning ahead of their attacks. And it's like when the FBI is focused on uh, things like this, and we have hundreds of informants undercover at the January 6th insurrection, but little to no investigation when they get tips about potential mass shooters, that's a huge problem when you think about the allocation of personnel and resources as well. Absolutely, not to mention we still don't know what happened in the Vegas shooting, but we'll have to leave it there. More rising right after this. A bipartisan group of senators is teaming up to take another go at banning lawmakers from owning and trading individual stocks while in office. Democratic Senators Liz Warren, Raphael Warnock, and Republican Senators Josh Hawley and Lindsey Graham are putting together a coalition of other lawmakers in the chamber based largely on Warren's proposal from last year with Senator Steve Daines. Stock trading among lawmakers has become a huge issue of concern, especially in the wake of economic downturn the country experienced during the pandemic. Unusual Whales reported on this issue, writing, despite 2022 being the worst market since 2008, both Democrats and Republicans beat the market. Many politicians individually beat the market, and many made unusual trades, resulting in huge gains. It is truly inexcusable. In all ways we tested, Congress beat the market. This is the worst market since 2008, and yet politicians returned better than many. How unusual. So Amber, will this bipartisan effort pay off? Do you think this is going to go anywhere? We have something in the House as well. Now this in the Senate, what do you make of it? I wish it would go somewhere. I'm not optimistic to be frank. Um, there's not really a huge appetite for this because lo and behold, a lot of Congress people are not going to want to give up their cash cow, which is their somehow perfect ability to predict exactly how the market is going to react to news of the day and legislation. I mean, it's truly amazing. Earlier this week, my friend Julio Rosas was testifying in front of the House, and um, he was uh, insulted at one point by Congressman Daniel Goldman. And he pointed out that Goldman is one of these uh, congresspeople who has this amazing ability to predict the market. He perfectly sold off PacWest Bancorp um, before for a 50% drop. He uh, got lucky again with Western Alliance Bank Corporation. I mean, the list on the Nancy Pelosi stock uh, tracker Twitter account, which is pretty heavily followed, shows all of these various politicians just doing inhuman type things with the market. And at a certain point, it starts to become quite obvious that there's a little bit of uh, informal insider trading going on, let's say. Right. And it comes from both directions. It's both something, uh, conditions they cause so that the, the corporations they have stock in end up performing well by choosing maybe not to regulate, by choosing maybe not to pass minimum wage uh, standards for all these corporations. They can kind of game the system, but they also get information about what potentially is about to experience a downturn, which sectors and which industries are things not going to go so well in the future. Maybe we'll pull our money out of uh, our investments in those sectors and put it into something else that we think could be doing well in the future based on information that they have access to that no one else does on top of the decision-making power they have that can determine how financially successful these corporations are. And so it comes from both directions. So it's a no-brainer that they shouldn't be allowed to trade stocks, but still well over half of the members of Congress do. 
Exactly. And this was a huge problem that I think really came into the forefront during the pandemic because there were politicians who had tens of millions of dollars in these big pharmaceutical companies that were developing the vaccine through Operation Warp Speed and who were, of course, making tons of money from selling PPE. And uh, there was a huge conflict of interest there um, with Congress and public health bureaucrats deciding the future of public health policy and pandemic policy while there was a huge financial interest at stake. And it's the same thing with big tech regulation. A lot of the people who want to have meetings with Facebook and Twitter to not regulate those companies or to not uh, hold them liable with what to what they publish under Section 230 um, have tons of stock money in big tech companies. Uh, so there's just all of these conflicts of interest. Even if there's not insider trading going on, um, just the fact that they have have a financial stake in the decisions that they're making for the American people is hugely problematic. Right. Yeah. It shows up everywhere. When I think about the transition to renewable energy, I think as soon as they pass sweeping regulatory measures when it comes to where we get our energy from and shifting towards renewables, it'll be very easy for them to pull out from, from their investments in fossil fuels and then invest in things like wind and solar and do that before the market, uh, before the, we see the stock dip when it comes to fossil fuels and before we see the stock rise when it comes uh, to renewable and green energy. They can literally make money off of the legislation they passed. That's one side of this. But then I also think about them making more money when working people they're supposed to represent make less. When our wages are low, profits are high and returns to shareholders are high. If our elected officials are people who have investments in the companies that are keeping our wages low, literally when we make less, they make more. That is insane that that's a real thing in the United States. We love to pretend that the US economy is a free market that is somehow disconnected entirely from our government. It's absolutely not the case. And the more we allow that lie to be the dominant narrative, the more we ignore how much our politicians are profiting off of their position of power and really gaming the system. Yeah, and I know crony capitalism was kind of a buzzword that ended up being sort of mocked during the Tea Party movement, but it is a reality that uh, government has a big hand in deciding which corporations pass or fail, which ones get government subsidies and which ones don't, which ones are uh, have their their friends and family members on the board and which ones don't, which ones get big lobbyist meetings with Congress people and which ones don't. It's all a game of favor trading. And of course, that is affecting um, the quality of product that's getting to the American people, the quality of jobs that American people are able to ha have in these corporations. And now corporations have become overtly politicized to the point where if you apparently hold the wrong political views, you can lose your job or you have to sit through all of these trainings of, of left-wing drivel. I mean, it's really turned our marketplace into this hyper-politicized, government-connected cabal. Um, the two things are basically uh, not divorceable from one another. Yeah, and I think also about the policy to raise interest rates, because 
You know, we can talk about that increasing unemployment, that increasing unemployment, meaning there's more competition in the labor market for jobs, workers are willing to take jobs for lower wages and less benefits and work more hours, et cetera. But also the consequence of raising interest rates means that people who wanted to start a small business or invest in a small business, now it's more expensive. Now they're less likely to do that. That is squashing competition in the market as well. That policy is really crushing small businesses across the country. And I think even from the perspective, if you're not a small business owner and you're just a consumer and you don't think about ever becoming a small business owner, do you want to go to every city in America and experience the same corporate chains at every single strip mall? Like, do you want corporations to have this much power? And so by members of Congress not taking more of a stand when it comes to monetary policy in the United States, which they absolutely would have the power to do, instead of kicking the ice cube under the fridge and letting it melt, by letting the Federal Reserve just adjust interest rates higher and lower, which is not sufficient monetary policy. Instead, they need to really step in and do something. But if you have stock in the S&P 500 in America's biggest corporations, maybe you're not as likely to stand up for working people and small businesses as well. Yeah, there's a huge trend of corporate interests um, somehow magically aligning with government officials, and they always are things that stamp on the little guy. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I was just talking about the fact that a lot of these Congress people had tens of millions of dollars in big pharmaceutical companies, but also they were aligned with the corporations, which could bear the brunt of strict lockdowns while small businesses went out of business. I mean, yes, they had the PPE loans, but then people were denigrated for accepting those. Um, there was apparently favor trading in regards to who actually was able to receive PPE loans. And also, if you're a small business owner, yes, okay, you get a PPE loan and you can pay your employees, but you're still not making a profit. How exactly are you going to live? So the whole system seemed gamed from the get-go to make sure that the Amazons and Walmarts and Googles of the world were able to survive this massive Massive economic downturn and installing of of, uh, of of buying and selling, while small businesses and everyday Americans were basically decimated by this. Yeah, so hopefully we'll see this uh, pass in the Senate and the House and members of Congress won't be allowed to trade stocks anymore. And then maybe we'll see a bunch of uh, our unfavorable folks retiring, Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein and the like, uh, who make a ton of money off of investing in stock. We've got more rising for you after this. When Senator Dianne Feinstein returned to the Senate last week, she was accompanied by former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Nancy Corinne Prouda. According to Politico, Prouda escorted Feinstein around the Capitol this week and last. The arrangement comes from a long relationship between Feinstein and the Pelosi family, and Pelosi's public interest in seeing Rep. Adam Schiff take over Feinstein's seat has led to speculation about whether the former speaker has Feinstein's best interests at heart, Politico says. According to the New York Times, Feinstein has suffered from more complications from the case of shingles that she was hospitalized for in February. The shingles reportedly spread to her face and neck, causing vision and balance issues and facial paralysis known as Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. The senator's spokesperson said that she continued to suffer from the effects of the syndrome. I don't think there's any reason at this point, Jessica, that Senator Feinstein should be in office. I mean, just from the videos that we saw of her returning to Capitol Hill the other day, I, I don't know how anyone could, could look with their own eyes and say that this woman is fit for office. 
Yeah, absolutely not. And that's been true for some time. The fact that we have Nancy Pelosi's daughter escorting Feinstein around is shocking to me. I mean, when you think about the Nancy Pelosi Democratic Party uh, regime and legacy, you think about her having her first job being with the Democratic Party under her father. She's only known a lifetime and career in politics. And when you think about the machine that they've created, that's what I take out of her own daughter, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, also named Nancy, escorting Dianne Feinstein around. It almost feels like the party leadership handlers are making sure things go well so that the succession to take her seat isn't going to be someone who's progressive like Barbara Lee. They really want it to be Adam Schiff. And for a party leader to be escorting around this woman who is, it feels like with degrading health, essentially on her deathbed, she shouldn't be serving in public office. She should be at home resting. She's extremely sick. And so it's really giving like house of cards vibes for me when I think about what's going on here. Yeah, our weekend at Bernie's. It's incredibly disturbing. Clearly, yeah. these people do not care about Senator Feinstein's health. Otherwise, they would be encouraging her to leave early and take care of herself. I mean, it's kind of a similar situation to me to what happened with uh, John Fetterman because he suffered that stroke on the campaign trail. And instead of leaving the race and making sure that he was putting his health first, everyone around him was apparently pushing him to keep going to the point where he ended up uh, developing this really severe depression that ended him, him up in Walter Reed Hospital for a period of weeks or months. I mean, that that's the type of thing that takes time and rest to recover from. And not trying to run a major Senate campaign in a swing state and then serve in the Senate afterwards. Um, it's just mind-blowing to me the how craven some of these uh, political people can get because of their desire for power. Yeah, I think, like, when I think of Fetterman, I think, okay, health emergency while on the campaign trail. That's a tough situation uh, to be in. But when I think of Feinstein, this has been going on for so many years. And there have been so many cases where it's very clear that young people in her district don't think she represents them whatsoever. And again, you have folks forced because of our political process to always be running for office, always be running for reelection. And once it's a household name and people know who Dianne Feinstein is, they're willing to check that box and uh, elect her again without competitive primaries happening, without many people participating in competitive primaries. It's really, you know, just obvious that our political process is degrading by how the party machine is picking who serves next and who is going to get reelected and really favoring incumbents unless that incumbent is a progressive. This is what the Democratic Party has done for far too long. And I think they're going to keep doing it with Dianne Feinstein and hopefully replacing her with someone like Adam Schiff is their plan. And just so people can get a better sense of just how much she's deteriorated, when she was first wheeled back into the Senate the other day, she asked, where am I going? And then she told a reporter that she apparently didn't even know that she had been gone. A reporter asked, how have they felt about you returning? And she said, no, I haven't been gone. You should follow the, I haven't been gone, I've been working. They asked, do you mean working from home? And she said, no, I've been working from here. I mean, come on, that is outrageous. Yeah, I think at the bare minimum, you know, people who are serving us in public office should know where they are and where they've <laughs> been. Um, like, I, I know people have said that the, the cognitive tests 
are, are ageist or what have you, I, I really think they're necessary. We have so many people serving in public office who are dinosaurs, who will not live to see the ramifications of the policies that they pass while they're in office. That's a problem. That means not only do they not have a stake in getting things right, but when it comes to Diane Feinstein and the likes, are they even capable of writing good policy? They don't know where they are. That's a scary state of American politics. There has to be some standard there. And the fact that there's not already is a problem. I don't think it's ages to say you should be able to, to know where you are and have your bearings. You should be able to pass a basic test. And they made Donald Trump do it. And he bragged and he was like, I passed it. I answered all of the questions right. I don't know if it's worth <laughs> bragging over, but they made him take one. Diane Feinstein should take one as well. It kind of seems like the bare minimum, doesn't doesn't it? And in any other job, if you were in any other industry, knowing where you are tends to be a pretty simple job requirement. And I kind of resent the fact that during the 2020 presidential campaign, the media, um, especially the corporate media, really dismissed questions about Biden's cognitive deficiencies. He basically campaigned from his basement. I did an article at the time breaking down exactly how many hours he was working per week on the campaign trail. And it was something like 25 to 30 hours, which is not even a full work week for most people. So the idea that he was was somehow going to ramp it up in the White House didn't seem likely. And sure enough, on most days, he calls a press lid at 3 or 4 p.m. He is basically in Wilmington or Rehoboth every weekend. And then he's somehow running for re-election. I mean, from your perspective, Jessica, I feel like I'd want to get Biden out of there in the hopes of trying to get somebody more progressive in or at least somebody younger. Yeah, I like to say we're not getting a run out of Biden. We're getting a light jog at best. That's the best <laughs> he can do at this point. But uh, in 2020, even on the campaign trail, when I was in Iowa, which is where the campaigning started for, for Biden, you had Bernie, who was being criticized so much for being old. But I would see Bernie on stage and off behind stage. And he's on all the time, having deep political conversations, talking with folks in Iowa about how what's going on in the country is affecting them. And then I see Biden, who can hardly keep it together while he's stumping at the podium. And then on debate nights, it's like some nights he would be on fire, some nights he wouldn't be. And my working theory is that they were pumping the guy up with Adderall. It's not right to do. It's a very weekend at Bernie's when you think about the inconsistency and in performance of Joe Biden. And when you hear folks who have worked with him in the White House and who have taken meetings with him say, you know, I don't think he should run again. I don't think he's all there. I think he's getting old. I don't think he has it in him to serve properly. It's hurting the Democratic Party in the long run, even if you're a member of the establishment and you care only about the Democratic Party and establishment candidates winning. This is still a bad strategy. And it just goes to show that Democratic Party consultants are disconnected from the public and don't understand what people want to see happen in our country. And they're going to destroy the party and really make way for a third party as a result. Your comment about Bernie reminded me of when Elizabeth Warren showed up to a campaign rally and she basically sprinted on stage to show how spry she was. Um, absolutely hilarious moment. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have apparently reached an impasse on debt ceiling talks, bringing negotiations to a grinding halt this morning. We're now less than two weeks away from a potential default. Meanwhile, Democratic senators continue to urge Joe Biden to use the 14th Amendment to avoid defaulting on the national debt. Let's hear what Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont had to say. The president 
has the authority to use the 14th Amendment, and he should be prepared to do that, period. Assistant law professor at Williamette University, Rowan Gray, joins now to weigh in. Rowan, it seems like somebody's going to have to budge here, right? Either McCarthy is going to have to agree to fewer spending cuts, or Biden is going to have to agree to any at all. Who do you think is going to flinch? Well, the issue is that even if we may think McCarthy and the other Republicans are being completely outrageous and unreasonable, only Biden has a legal and constitutional responsibility to keep the checks that have already been authorized, keep the spending that's already been committed going out. So as far as the budget negotiations, both sides can continue to play chicken for as long as they want. But when it comes to the debt ceiling and the spending commitments that have already been appropriated by Congress, it's only Biden that actually has to blink and continue to spend. The question is whether he will use unilateral options as he is required to do or not. Now, you've been pretty uh, much the face of this, but there is an entirely legal option. It would, of course, be unconstitutional for the Treasury to make decisions about which to prioritize, whether it's, you know, make good on Treasury spending or Social Security. That's not under their purview per the Constitution. But there is another option uh, to mint a coin. Can you tell us a little bit about that third option? Yeah, that's right. Biden doesn't have any constitutional power to selectively default, which is what prioritization really is. Uh, and the 14th Amendment says that the debts that have been incurred cannot be questioned, which is obviously also true. But until you've exhausted all the legal options available to you, you can't simply ignore the debt ceiling and continue to issue debt because you have options to continue to honor both laws simultaneously. There isn't an actual contradiction until you've demonstrated that you've exhausted every other option. And the Coinage Act historically was never counted towards the debt ceiling. Any coins that were created do not count towards the debt ceiling. And we've had coins being issued since the birth of the Republic. The Mint is over 100 years older than the Federal Reserve and has been returning what they call signage revenue, which is the amount of money that you create by issuing new money over the cost of creating the actual instruments themselves, uh, has been returning signage to the government uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So what the proposal is, is to use an existing provision of the Coinage Act that is relatively obscure but very clear in its language that authorizes the Treasury Secretary to mint and issue uh, platinum proof coins, proof meaning very shiny, high production grade of whatever denomination the Treasury Secretary wants. So the idea is the Treasury Secretary could issue very high-value coins, up to maybe a trillion dollars, and use those as an alternative source of revenue than issuing bonds of up to, you know, billions of dollars. Earlier this week, former President Donald Trump said, these people are crazy. This is the United States government. First of all, you never have to default because you print the money. I have to tell you, okay? Economics professor at Stony Brook University, Stephanie Kelton, wrote, this resonated with a lot of people, 1 million views in less than 24 hours. Some of you said it was just Trump talking crazy, but this is really basic stuff. Business inventor, or investor rather, Warren Buffett, said we will pay our debts in the end. It's not like if we don't pay, we can't pay. We've got the right to print our own money, that's the key. Kelton added, bottom line, U.S. Treasuries, what we call the national debt, are just dollars with different maturity dates. 
When they mature, the government deletes the bond, debits the securities account, and prints a plain old regular dollar, credits a bank account. What do you make of this assessment of this situation, Rowan? Yeah, I think the funny thing is that the Trump quote is actually from when he was engaged in a debt ceiling dispute back in, I think, 2016, 2017, and nobody cared when he said it. It was quite... Um, it was quite a non-event. And so the idea, the basic fact that we can always make money and that as uh, even economists like Paul Krugman have said, the difference between running a deficit by issuing debt versus issuing straight up money is not economically significant. It's not the kind of hyperinflationary Weimar Germany, Zimbabwe thing that might people often associate with it. In fact, it's pretty much economically identical to run a deficit by issuing debt versus issuing money. It's the, it's the equivalent of putting the money into a savings account versus a checking account. Do you feel richer? Do you feel like you've got millions of dollars to spend if your paycheck came into your savings account instead of your checking account? Probably not. It's the same amount of money at the end of the day, and that's what's important. So both, uh, both Trump and Warren Buffett are correct, and the reality is that this is an accounting uh, crisis. It's a completely manufactured uh, f uh, uh, balance sheet crisis, and it takes a balance sheet solution like an accounting gimmick like the coin. You're right that that, uh, that Trump comment was a little bit older, but he is responding to the debt news now, writing on Truth Social, Republicans should not make a deal on the debt ceiling unless they get everything they want, including the kitchen sink. That's the way the Democrats have always dealt with us. Do not fold. Now, this is obviously a little bit different than what he was saying when he was president, and he acknowledged that in a recent CNN town hall, saying the only difference between his uh, his his stance on raising the debt ceiling is that he was president then and he's not now. <laughs> Do you think that he's right to say Republicans should stand firm? I mean, I think at this point, Republicans are going to do what they've been elected to do, which is continue to play hardball until they go off a cliff or take the American economy and the public with them. I think the reality is that the only people who we should be putting pressure on right now are the Biden administration, because it's up to them to decide whether to take these Republican sort of uh, uh, terrorist demands seriously. If the Republicans are going to play hardball like this, Biden's response should be, I'm going to give you nothing. And I'm going to continue to honor all the spending commitments that I have been told to honor. And I don't need you. Uh, that's the way to make these demands uh, go away, is to render them obsolete. But at this point, the Biden administration is so committed to a vision of compromise that they are willing to sit down with people who've got no interest in compromise and have said so quite clearly. They want everything they can. They don't care about protocol. They don't care about the health of the economy. And the only correct answer to that is to stop negotiating with them and do what you need to do. So Rowan, you've talked about this in great detail, this this analogy of, okay, we had the prior Congress vote to spend X amount of dollars, they've created the budget, now it's kind of like getting your credit card bill and saying, well, I'm going to change everything I've spent money on. You, you can't relitigate the prior Congress's spending, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make more cuts. That's McCarthy's plan. And so there's real consequences of default. Kamala, or Kamala Harris, rather, was in a Zoom conference and was asked about what the consequences of default would be, and she ended up dropping off of the conference before answering that question. What do you make of putting us in a position 
where, where we do default and the government isn't making good on its obligations, what are the consequences of that? And what position does that put Democrats or members of Congress in when it comes to, oh, well, now people are out of work, people aren't getting their social security checks. So just go with McCarthy's plan to get this done. Is that really the moral position they're trying to put us in? I mean, it's the position a lot of them, I think, are going to find themselves in unless they grow a backbone and start thinking a little more strategically. But it's a terrible position to be in because when they're talking about, quote unquote, prioritizing payments, what they really mean is we're going to make sure that the bondholders, the people holding the financial debt, will get paid first. But the people that won't get paid, as you said, are social security recipients, are government employees, are benefit recipients from all kinds of social programs who quite fairly need that money and are entitled to that money just as much as bondholders. So when they say prioritization, they mean prioritization of the financial sector over real people. And we are talking about a huge amount of pain. We are talking about a huge amount of austerity. We are talking about a huge amount of disruption. People's lives are going to be upended. Some people who are requiring this money to live are going to be in a really, really tough place. And it's all a manufactured crisis because to your point, the 14th Amendment, which was created during the Civil War specifically to prevent the Confederacy from getting back into Congress later and trying to refuse to honor all of the pensions of the Union soldiers that had won the war to say, we don't want to let a future Congress invalidate a previous Congress's debts. You cannot come in later and undo what was previously committed. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're not talking about the budget for next year. We're not talking about the, the budget for 10 years from now. We are talking about previously incurred legislated debts that the very small number of Republicans who are holding out here don't want to honor. And it's against the Constitution, but it's also against good government. government. Law Professor William Ed Rowan Gray, thank you so much for helping us break this down. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to make a 2024 presidential bid official next week, but he's been dealt a heavy blow with Disney's recent decision to scrap plans to build a $1 billion office complex in Orlando that was expected to bring more than 2,000 jobs with an average salary of $120,000. Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Steve Olacara is a former U.S. Senate candidate for Wisconsin and founder of the Millennial Action Project. And Seth Higgins is a Krauthammer Fellow. Great to have you both with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So, Seth, yeah, I want to bring you in here. What do you make of this ongoing beef, the drama between DeSantis and Disney? Is it going to hurt his chances with Republicans, this loss of business and jobs in Orlando, or do you think they care more about the political fight of, of Disney being against the Don't Say Gay bill. What do you make of it? This uh, Disney battle between Ron DeSantis is quickly turning into uh, DeSantis's mission accomplished moment. He came out strong, he came out hard, he came out heavy against Disney over some of their cultural positions and quickly claimed victory. But it's becoming readily apparent that this is a more complicated battle than he anticipated and Disney has been nipping at his heels ever since. And crucially, this really opens up an opportunity for some of the third tier uh, Republican candidates to attack Disney as being anti-business, being anti-economic development. So while I don't think this is necessarily going to define the 2024 campaign, I don't think this is necessarily going to define Disney, this is going to become a political quagmire. 
Yeah, and you know, to your point about the third tier candidates being able to use this as a political wedge issue, Nikki Haley uh, said that South Carolina would be happy to bring Disney jobs um, in to help her state. She was the governor there. But I wonder, um, you know, is it time for Republicans and conservatives to maybe start thinking less about the economic ramifications of corporate decisions and more about the cultural decisions? Because is it not that sort of bottom line beats all attitude that got us to this point in the first place where corporations have gone woke? Yeah, I would disagree with that framing. I think Disney actually wasn't thinking about their bottom line. They were thinking about engaging in a cultural battle. And Disney has received blowback for this as well. Now, Disney's a large corporation. They're gonna come through this just fine. Um, but it's really hard to engage in a cultural war through economic policy. Um, so I think um, DeSantis's initial um, engagement in this Disney battle through kind of economic tools was kind of too clever by half. It, it seemed too cute, too quick, and he claimed victory too soon. And this has serious ramifications going forward. Steve, I want to bring you in here. Uh, the mission accomplished analogy, just the mental image of uh, George W. Bush with the banner, that's really how it felt when DeSantis said, all right, we're going to call an emergency session. We're going to take away Disney's self-governing status. And then it turns out there's some legislation that would very clearly prevent that and actually require the governor to raise income taxes on Floridians, which they would hate if they were to take over Reedy Creek, you know, Disney's municipality, uh, their bonds, right? It created this whole mess. What do you you make of the mess and the mission accomplished moment from DeSantis? I think that's right. I think that Governor DeSantis has gotten too much into cuteness to use the, the word that Seth was mentioning instead of governing. This has real implications on the ground. As you mentioned, the taxes would be spread out across the two counties in the area. And that's not something they really looked into before they actually pushed this. And that's part of a larger trend you see in politics, especially those aspiring to win their presidential primaries, is engaging in this case, what I would call a form of conservative wokeness. When you think about the don't say gay bill, banning books, critical race theory, these are all things that Governor DeSantis was doing to evoke a certain emotional response, specifically in the activist primary electorate that he know he would have to appeal to in a presidential race. And the flip side of that is it's not great for governing in Florida. We saw a similar example in Wisconsin where Scott Walker was getting ready to run for president. He did a number of things that he thought would play well nationally, but his approval dropped in the state of Wisconsin. So I would expect to see a similar thing start to happen in Florida. We're gonna to jump to another topic. Meanwhile, Democrats are racing to avoid embarrassment in New Hampshire as an obscure state law threatens Joe Biden's placement on the ballot there. The president may be forced to uh, concede primaries in the Granite State after Democrats push to make South Carolina the first primary state. Also in a memo released yesterday, the Biden reelection campaign insisted there are, quote, a number of viable pathways to the 270 electoral votes for the president and that the campaign will engage early and often with women, black, Hispanic, Asian American, and young voters. As both parties shore up their 2024 strategies, new analysis offered up by the Washington Post finds that Republicans have not fared well at the ballot box in several election cycles since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a sign that the issue could, co could come to haunt the GOP 
in 2024. Steve, I want to start by getting your take on the Biden uh, folly, I guess, in New Hampshire. Do you think it's possible that they could end up with some egg on their face? They probably will, because from the beginning, this was a purely political decision, essentially a backroom deal that was struck to reward South Carolina because it was in many ways the kingmaker for Joe Biden back in the 2020 race. And you see that New Hampshire Democrats are extremely upset about this situation and they have a state law that will require them to have the first primary. So Joe Biden will have to make a pretty big decision here. And my advice to his team would be to at least be on the ballot, if not campaign there, because you don't want to have a huge embarrassment where one of the other candidates outperforms him, which would actually be a relapse of uh, 2020 when he also did quite poorly. So this is going to be some egg in his face, but at the same time, it'll be one or two news cycles and then people will move on, I think, pretty quickly after that. Yeah, whenever I think about the 2020 primary, I think about, you know, Biden not doing well in New Hampshire, in Iowa, and then having a, a phone call go out, rumored by Obama, calling a bunch of candidates, asking them to drop out and endorse Joe Biden. We're in a bit of a different political landscape now with RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. Seth, what do you make of how the Democratic Party has run their primary election process? To me, it feels like they're really putting their thumb on the scale for the establishment Democrat candidate that they want. And that seems to, to hurt their prospects in the long run, right? Losing the trust of their base, who maybe preferred other candidates. Bernie Sanders was doing quite well then. I have a bias towards Bernie, but uh, Seth, what do you make of it? Yeah, Jessica, I think you have a point, and it's important to look at recent history. If Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, New Hampshire is the graveyard of incumbent presidents. In 1968, LBJ got 48% of the vote against McCarthy's 42 in 80, Carter got 51 against Kennedy's 38. And in 92, Bush got 58 against Buchanan's 40. So New Hampshire is the canary in the coal mine for an incumbent president who's facing disaster. The last thing Biden needs to do is fool around in New Hampshire and give an opening to RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson to capture 30% of the vote and drive home a narrative that Biden is weak and he is under threat. Let me go back to you, Seth, for this issue of abortion. We know that Republicans' pro-life position of life at conception is not overwhelmingly popular with the American populace. Um, but I think it would be probably a betrayal to their base to also say that they're going to take the Trump approach, which is that there should be no federal solution whatsoever. So what do you think the right response is for threading that needle? Is it a 15-week ban, which is more popular? Is it six weeks like uh, DeSantis signed in Florida? How do Republicans stay loyal pro-lifers while also not losing a huge segment of the electorate, particularly women? What Republicans have to do here is understand that they really need to get as much um, in terms of policy victories as possible, where possible, when possible. So I don't think pushing for federal regulation in terms of abortion is the correct strategy. This is really a state by state, locality by locality battle. And more importantly than in terms of, you know, 15 versus 12 versus nine versus six week ban, Republicans won really need to lead with their heart on this issue. They can come across sounding incredibly callous. They need to make it incredibly clear that their heart goes out to any woman who finds themselves in a challenging situation. And they have a bad history of putting forward candidates who talk about this issue in really crass 
rude ways that many women find disrespectful, even women who might be sympathetic to their point of view. So one, take the victories where you can. Two, lead with your heart, be sensitive. This is a personal issue. Thank you so much for joining us, Seth Higgins and Steve Olacara. It's been good having a, a bit of a Brady Bunch panel, all of us weighing in on this. Thanks for being here. We've got more Thank rising you. for you all after this. meeting among business, political, and technology elites, also known as the Bilderberg event, is teeing off in Lisbon, Portugal, this week. The CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, is meeting with companies including Microsoft and DeepMind leadership, as well as former Google leadership. At the mysterious gathering and artificial intelligence tops of the agenda, CNBC reports. Editor of the Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, tweeted, The transatlantic neoliberal cabal known as the Bilderberg Group is meeting now at a secret location in Lisbon. Participants include NATO's Stoltenberg, Ukraine's Kaliba, Henry Kissinger, Peter Thiel, Palantir's CARP, Pfizer CEO Albert Berla, neocon Nord Stream bombing power couple, and Applebaum and Radoslav Sikorsky, Canada's Christian Freeland, the Dutch, Dutch and Danish PMs, and members of the media who've pledged not to cover the event. The only black participant is Democrat Pet Project Stacey Abrams, who was on the steering committee. Abrams is the CEO of SageWorks, a legal consulting firm that has represented clients such as the Atlanta Dream of the women's NBA. On the agenda is China and India, two major countries that have frustrated the transatlantic project for world control. Not involved in the Bilderberg meeting are any Chinese or Indian participants of any note. Other notable names include National Security Council's Thomas Wright, former Google CEO and chair Eric Schmidt, president of the Goldman Sachs Group John Waldron, and here's the full list of attendees as well, just for your knowledge. Um, wow, holy great reset, Jessica. I mean, just reading that list of names gave me chills up my arms. Yeah, yeah. I think about like deep state, right? Everyone's like, ah, oh, there's all of these secret meetings among the elites. and. Sure, yes, I worry a lot about what the National Security Agency and CIA and FBI are up to. However, the surface level state, which is just a bunch of elites and rich people meeting and making decisions of great consequence because of the sheer power they have and resources they control and labor they direct as the CEO of companies. I mean, everything from Sikorsky to Google, OpenAI, these are people with a lot of power who make decisions of great consequence on a daily basis. It was supposed to be members of Congress and elected officials making decisions on behalf of the people in this country. It's just not how it works anymore. And they have these events and try and make it seem like they're not colluding and making decisions of great consequence. Like this should be the job of the government in a democratic society. We should have to elect you to make decisions of such consequence. But instead, it's meetings like this that are overlooked. Exactly. And the whole point of having elected officials represent you and make decisions is that you can boot them out of office if you don't like what they're doing. In this case, these people are completely entrenched in these globalized systems. And I wanted to hone in a, for a second on Ann Applebaum, um, the part of the neocon uh, bombing power couple, because her husband was the one who is a member of the EU-US delegation who sent that text after the Nord Stream pipeline was bombed, thanking the US for getting it done. And Ann Applebaum was asked about that, and she basically tried to play it off as a joke. And I think that's kind of indicative of this wider mindset that you hear from these global elites, which is kind of mockery and dismissal of people's concerns about how much power they have. 
Um, they seem to think that it's funny that people look at them and say, actually, a global cabal of elites deciding everything for the entire world, let alone our country, is super problematic. They just brush it off like it's no big deal. Yeah. Oh, ha ha ha. You think we have a secret club, a secret cabal. That's really cute. And it's like, so what else would you call this? What are you doing <laughs> instead? What are you guys talking about? Release the transcripts of the conversations then if you have nothing to hide and you're just talking and chatting and gossiping about the goings on in the world. No, of course you're making decisions of great consequence. And every administration that we've seen uh, ignore the problems of antitrust regulations has put us in this position because corporate power is the main problem here, right? It's, it's always been the case that leaders of multinational corporations, people who have stock and shares in those multinational corporations have colluded and used their power to amass more money, more control over the economy, control more resources and control more labor, and really accumulate such an amount of wealth that they control our politics now. So if, if Pfizer wants to give some money and donate uh, and lobby members of Congress, they can very easily do it. And it's just been this entrenched plan for so long. And it's so in our face because they're not afraid of us being able to do anything about it because when a member of Congress is paid you know, their annual salary of, of $400,000, $200,000 a year, and someone comes in and says, you know, we're gonna donate to all of the members of the party to make policy in this direction or another, now they, they work for whoever is donating to them, not working for us, especially this is a problem when you have people like Nancy Pelosi also being shareholders in these very big companies. Uh, it's very obvious who they work for, and it's not us, it's these big corporations. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating to see that they repeatedly make decisions that benefit big corporations at the expense of the little guy, whether it's going all in on a green energy agenda without any uh, thought to dependability, cost, um, the fact that the uh, green energy uh, system is propped up by government subsidies, the fact that a lot of countries who have tried to make that shift, such as Germany, which we've talked about before, ends up reliant on countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia for oil in order to keep um, their lights on. I mean, it's very, very disturbing. Another um, big global uh, push that they've been doing in these meetings is apparently trying to get people to not eat meat. They're trying to push the idea of eating bugs. I mean, it's all super wacky, uh, like supervillain type stuff. And again, they just think that it's funny. Yeah, let them eat bugs, Amber, come on. Oh. <laughs> I will not live in the pod. I will not eat the bugs. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Sam Altman being a, a leader in this is really interesting to me, especially when we think about the influence of AI now and the growth of AI and how much this is becoming a central part of the conversation, because that's a lot of power to control algorithms that can be more effective than, than humans in some cases, that can displace a lot of our labor. Once you have these people with control of so much data and so much computing power that they can continue to, to put this computing power to use and make more money off of it, that's such disproportionate control compared to the people who have no access to algorithms and artificial intelligence. And so the fact that they're all meeting uh, with that on the agenda, knowing how much data these companies have their hands on and control over, the fact that they can all collude with Google, which Alphabet has disproportionate control over AI and the data uh, on all of the people living in the country, like that's really concerning that, that he was a main organizer of this and they're all coming together and talking about AI. We should be very concerned about that. 
Yeah, they also use these algorithms to suppress speech. Um, a lot of these global cabals have disinformation committees wherein they fund individuals in the media in order to silence debate on issues that they find uncomfortable. Um, a great example of this was when there were disinformation groups working directly with Twitter and Facebook to censor questions about the vaccines, to censor questions about COVID policy. I mean, this is um, really running the gamut in terms of them trying to suppress anything that would um, potentially harm their pocketbooks and harm their profits and also to hurt or undermine their larger goal of creating this global economy. Yeah, I think, you know, I talk a lot about lobbying, right, the power that these companies have because they have so much money, they can influence our politics in that way. It's it's a more concern, uh, more of a concern and maybe an overlooked one. A lot of people say, oh, if we get money out of politics, things will be much better. We won't see all of this corporate power uh, dominating decisions being made in our country. I disagree because if these folks still have such a, a concentration of, of power and wealth, they can control media narratives very easily. It's It's been done before with Cambridge Analytica. There's really sophisticated usage of data and algorithms to reach people who are susceptible to misinformation, to run media campaigns, and really pay as an advertiser to a, a mainstream news network and say, hey, maybe you, you don't run a story on this. Maybe you do run a story on this. Their control over media is, is really control over people's thoughts and the narrative there. So it's much deeper than just like, we're gonna give some members of Congress uh, some money, make some donations and try to influence politics in that way. But by controlling the public and public thought, they maintain their power as well. Yeah, it's a really institutionalized effort. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Amazon Labor Union President Chris Smalls joins us today to give some updates on the ongoing legal disputes uh, and lawsuits with the mega corporation. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I want to get into it. Andy Jassy has a bad habit of running his mouth. Uh, there's a lot of union busting on the hands of Amazon. Can you tell us what the latest is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, he... Uh, Broken the law over the summer. He had an interview that was on CNBC, and he said some uh, illegal things uh, pertaining to our union, the election results. Uh, so we were able to file the unfair labor practice law against those comments. Uh, the NLRB has found some merit uh, as far as it being illegal, what he said. And uh, we are now in the process of actually going to trial, hopefully, or some type of hearing about those comments in the next few weeks. Uh, so hopefully one day there'll be opportunity where we'll have to, you know, meet up in Seattle and uh, address these comments and address Andy Jossie himself uh, in person. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, I, I spoke to my general counsel a few days ago and uh, they have uh, made me aware of the board being uh, Jennifer Abruzzle, who has been very, very good for for labor ever since she's been appointed. Uh, uh, she is definitely trying to review these cases and expedite them so that we can uh, uh, move forward with these uh, charges. What is the current state of the union outside of the legal battle that you're currently having? What's the membership like? Have you all had elections for leadership? Give us a status update. Yeah, well, right now, uh, the union itself is in uh, a standstill 
basically with the board still. Um, unfortunately, because of the way our laws are designed and the way the system is, uh, Amazon is using this against us. Um, they appealed our election results, in which we were able to uh, defeat them in court over the 25 objections. But after that, uh, they, we've been certified by the board, and now they're appealing our certification. So uh, as far as the contract uh, and, the, and the clock for the contract, it hasn't even begun yet. You know, we, have, we haven't gotten a bargaining order yet, so we're not able to bargain with the company until we get that bargaining order, which, once again, the board has the decision to make. And once that decision is made, uh, we will absolutely file our bargaining order immediately. And that clock will begin you know, if Amazon doesn't appeal, which we, we know and expect they will. So right now, uh, currently, what we're doing is just continue to organize and engage with our members. Uh, you know, we, eight, we have 8,300 plus, you know, that, that gets hired and fired every week. Amazon is hiring right now as we speak and firing people, targeting our organizers and et cetera. So for us, it's just keeping members engaged, uh, educated. Uh, and, and informed, you know, we just, that's all we can do. And uh, my team has done a great job with that. Our office has been around for over a year, five minutes away from the building. We have done a series of trainings, shop stewardess. Uh, we expanded our executive board. Uh, we have over 14 members on there. Uh, we, we have done a lot of great things in our community, standing up in different rallies, uh, taking up different uh, stances as, as far as writing bills, uh, the warehouse protection bill spearheaded by Jessica Ramos. Uh, we're now signed on to the Tiffy Caban, another New York state Senator who's fighting uh, for us as well. So we're just, you know, once again, just organizing in several different ways and keeping our members engaged until we get to that contract. So you have thousands of workers at JFK eight that uh, voted for a union and it's a standstill. It's not sustainable for labor and working people in the country to have an L NLRB fighting against these mega corporations like Amazon that have infinite almost resources when it comes to, to fighting these lawsuits and appealing back and forth and dragging this out in the courts before workers who have voted to unionize get recognized and can bargain a contract. What do you want to see maybe the Biden administration or members of Congress do so that's not an ongoing standstill for many years when you have workers that have actually voted to unionize and are being denied that because Amazon's holding this up in the courts, which they have the resources to do for quite some time. Who do you want to see step in? What would you like them to do? Well, absolutely. You know, the Biden administration has a responsibility to the working class people and, and not just, uh, you know, Amazon, any industry, you know, the Starbucks campaign as well. And, uh, you know, all the other industries that are unionized just had the strippers unionized. Uh, congratulations to them. And, and, you know, we shouldn't have to wait. I'm in a country right now where uh, Canada, which is right over the border, where if you win your election, it's immediate. You know, there's, it's, it's automatic bargaining with the company, you know, and these are the type of laws that we need in America. You know, I would love to see uh, immediate automatic bargaining right after these election results come back. You know, there shouldn't be no dispute. The corporation shouldn't have the opportunity to drag these out for courts. I mean, in the courts for years. And also the fact that you're right. You know, these workers are are expecting the NLRB to do the right thing. You know, they voted using this process. Uh, as a labor leader, how am I 
supposed to usher people into this process if the process is a, a dead end or a stalemate. So for the, the NLRB, for the Biden administration, for any politician in America, uh, labor should be something that is definitely uh, something they're fighting for. And to progress, we have a lot of laws that are outdated, especially ones from the 1930s. We saw how Biden used the 1945 uh, law to stop the railroad strike last year. Uh, these things shouldn't happen in 2023. So I'm, I'm putting pressure on the Biden administration to do better. Um, I understand that there's a budget issue with NLRB and they're understaffed, but these things shouldn't be happening when you have labor on the uprising. We have to be prepared for that, and we have to make some laws that are going to help the working class people uh, in this time that we live in. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to some recent criticism that ran in the New York Times about your organizing efforts. Tristan Martinez, who was a JFK employee who says he helped you organize workers earlier on in the union fight, accused you of flying all over the world and basically not being on the ground to actually help them organize workers at that time. What's your response? Well, that's easy. I mean, um, you know, as as the president of any union, you know, that is our job is to to make sure that we amplify in our efforts in other spaces. Uh, uh, this is a worker-led union, so I don't have the opportunity to walk into an Amazon facility. We all know that. If I show up on any Amazon property, uh, they call the police. You know, I've been arrested. I've sat in jail in jail last year. I've been accosted by police at every Amazon building I've visited, uh, whether it's in JFK or whether it's in Kentucky or, you know, whether it's upstate New York. Uh, they call the police on me every time they see my presence. So I have to be very careful. I do I do have to uh, make sure I'm not being in jail or else I'm no use to anybody. And as far as uh, organizing, you know, it's a worker-led union. The organizers that, that I organize with are, are not in the media. You know, so I don't care about critics and and opinions. You know, everybody's entitled to have their own opinions. Um, but I know our work speaks for ourselves. And uh, the work that we put in uh, every day uh, is always going to be towards the union, no matter where I'm at. The union doesn't pack up and leave uh, when I leave town. And it's 365 days in a year. You know, I spent over 300 days at that bus stop across the street. Um, I sacrificed plenty of time away from my children away from my family, away from my loved ones. You know, I'm only one person at the end of the day. I'm not going to be the make or break of any union. Uh, as a worker-led union, it's up to the organizers in the building to step up to leadership. I'm an intern. Um, you know, our elections will happen after we get the CBA agreement. So, you know, for Tristan and any other organizer at JFK, uh, they understand being a worker-led union you know, this is their union. It's only as strong as they want it to be. Yep. With the cost of living and jobs in the economy as top issues for people voting and making the decision as to who they want to be president in 2024, uh, with wages stagnant since 1970, it does seem that the response is strong unions in the United States of America. So thank you so much for your work on this front. Chris, thank you for talking to us. More rising after this. Thank you for having me. An eight-year-old migrant from Panama died in U.S. Border Patrol custody on Wednesday after crossing the border with her family, CBS reports. The young girl had a heart condition and passed away after experiencing a medical emergency inside a Border Patrol station in Harlingen, Texas. 
Secretary of Foreign Affairs Enrique Honduras has identified the girl as Anadith Tanay Reyes Alvarez. Honduras has called for a, quote, thorough investigation into her death, according to CBS. Last week, a 17-year-old migrant boy from Honduras died in the custody of a Florida facility that was sheltering, quote, unaccompanied minors from the Department of Health and Human Services. NBC reports the boy, who was named Angel Eduardo Maradiaga Espinosa, entered the department's care on May 5th and, quote, received a clean bill of health, according to someone familiar with the matter. But then on May 10th, he was taken to a hospital where he passed away. Secretary Honduras also called for an investigation into Espinosa's death, NBC writes. So we've seen an increase of, of deaths at the border, Amber, in recent years, year over year. It's, it's increasing quite dramatically. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to come of these investigations because it seems to me that uh, nothing really ever comes of these investigations at the border. They're not investigated thoroughly and the increasing numbers uh, of deaths at the border is concerning to me as well. Uh, I don't know if it's a lack of resources, a lack of care or just intentional neglect. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think it's probably most likely a lack of resources. I remember a similar death of a migrant child occurred under Trump, and uh, similarly, there was a lot of outrage initially. And then as details came out, it turned out that the girl had been suffering with a fever, and the father had basically rejected medicine or medical care until she was basically beyond the point of saving. So we really don't know until the full story comes out. But what I will say is that, to me, this is a story about the dangerous consequences of people encouraging illegal crossings. Because the reality is that these people who are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, are trekking hundreds, if not thousands of miles on foot. A lot of them are paying human traffickers and coyotes who don't care about their well-being at all. About a third of the women who make this journey will be sexually abused by people who are supposed to be taking care of them. And then there's also just the uh, potential for physical death, whether it's drowning from crossing the Rio Grande River, baking to death in the back of a hot tractor trailer because the coyote fled after he crossed the border. I mean, these situations, unfortunately, are not few and far between. They happen with great frequency. And there should be no U.S. policy that tells people that if they come to the border through these dangerous means, that they're going to be able to stay in the U.S. Yeah, when I look at the figures of, of fiscal year over fiscal year, the deaths uh, in 2020, 254 at the border, 2021, 568 deaths at the border, and then last year, 890 deaths at the border. Uh, it's escalating at an extremely rapid pace. But I also think about, okay, if you are detained at the southern border, we've had all kinds of narratives come out about the resources that they have there. I remember when there was a baby formula shortage, there were all of these photos taken of supplies at the border and ended up not actually being baby formula, but just powdered milk, which is not something that you can give to an infant. So this blame that all of the baby formula was at the border was a bit ridiculous. But I really think about people coming into the United States uh, which I believe they should have a, a right to do as migrants and especially as asylum seekers. But I think about the access to health care that people born in the United States have. Uh, it's not there for them either. Many people die because they can't afford uh, health care in the United States because it's so expensive. They delay care and wait to the point uh, where they're literally about to die before they go to the emergency room and then they can incur a lifetime of medical debt. And so when I think about what happens at the southern border if someone arrives and is sick, 
It's not incredibly different from someone who is working class born in the United States. Right. And that's why I would challenge your claim that people have a right to come into the U.S. because when citizens aren't getting the care that they need, when U.S. citizens are being put out of work by illegal immigrants, I think it's kind of absurd to say that they should be allowed in. We know that the majority of asylum claims end up being not legitimate. Um, economic migration is a real thing. A lot of people come to the U.S. in search of a better life. But under asylum law, that's not a reason for being granted asylum. And a lot of people are abusing the asylum process. They come to the southern border hoping that they're going to sneak past Border Patrol. And if they get caught, they claim asylum. And all of a sudden, because they've stepped a foot on U.S. soil, they get to stay in the U.S. indefinitely for two, three years until their immigration case comes up. Even if they get removed at that time, They've already basically spent a significant period of time here and used U.S. resources, not to mention the fact that a lot of people don't even show up for their court hearing. Yeah, I do, I do think about the issue of, of the impact of immigration on the economy a little bit differently. When I think about the labor shortage that folks uh, in, at every level are talking about, whether you're the CEO of a company saying nobody wants to work anymore, what they're really saying is nobody wants to take a job for a wage that is so low that you cannot afford to live because the cost of living is so high in the United States. Uh, you can't say that there's a complaint of a labor shortage and then say we can't have migrant workers come in because they'll displace our jobs. It seems to me that what's going on very clearly is that it's a greed problem on behalf of corporations who want to pay workers less than their labor is worth. They have higher profit margins in recent years than ever before. So they're not hurting for cash and that's not why they're paying workers. They're intentionally greedy, trying to exploit the labor. So I would point to the CEOs of these corporations and the decision makers of keeping wages low and prices high uh, as the reason workers are struggling. There's well, I don't disagree with that, but, but Jessica, if that's the case and the reason people don't want to take certain jobs is because the wages or benefits are too low or the conditions are poor, why would you want to subject illegal immigrants or legal immigrants to those conditions? It's not so much about subjecting them to those conditions. Obviously, the, the corporation should pay more. There should be higher wages for everyone. Uh, what it's really about is the United States waging regime change wars all across Latin and Central America, creating instability across these regions and opening it up so that people who are capable of great violence end up being in control. Uh, their governments and institutions that have been in place for quite some time are then degraded thanks to our actions abroad. Now these people want to flee regions of violence and come to the United States. I don't think the problem is, is the free-flowing movement of humans who want to live somewhere else or maybe take a job, you know, in California working on a farm. I don't think that is a problem or a crime, especially when they're fleeing a lot of violence that begins and ends with the United States and the same corporations uh, that are exploiting our labor here have exploited labor abroad. U.S.-based multinational corporations colluding with the foreign policy establishment. You have John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, uh, who represented these corporations with Sullivan and Cromwell and then got appointed to be the secretary of state and the head of the CIA. It's very clear where the connections are and where the priorities are. And working people in the U.S., Mexico, Central America, and Latin America, and those born here are, are at the consequence of the hands of folks who aren't afraid to use violence to accumulate more power and wealth. I agree that re regime change wars are awful and the U.S. shouldn't be involved in them. And also that CEOs certainly exploit foreign labor because they can get away with paying them lower wages and put them in horrific conditions. But the problem is, is when illegal immigrants come in and take those jobs that we're talking about that Americans allegedly don't want to work, 
then you're not uh, having people who are able to be uh, tracked by the system. You're not having people who have the same legal rights and benefits that American workers do. And so they do end up getting taken advantage of. The New York Times did an investigation a couple of months ago about the effect that Biden's border policy has had on migrant children in particular. And they found that 12 to 15-year-olds were working night shifts in factories without paperwork. And the response from these companies, including Ben & Jerry's, which is supposed to be this progressive bastion of, of uh, human rights, was claiming, well, it's no big deal because our factory believes in good conditions for workers. So even if we have a 12-year-old on the line, who cares? I mean, that to me is just unconscionable. Yeah, I think when I consider the economic ramifications of what's going on, it's like we have a choice where we can regulate corporations and say it's unacceptable that you're paying wages that are so much lower than what's required to live in the United States. Someone should not work 40 hours a week and still be unable to pay rent and bills and have a kid and go to school if they want to. Uh, the American dream is at a loss because of corporations being greedy. And so when I, you're faced with a decision, we have enough real productive resources to be put to use and be more productive as a society if more people come in and work. Okay, that's an option. But they're going to make wages low and exploit people's labor. So what's your choice? Are we going to regulate the corporations uh, and allow people to come in who want to be in the United States who are clearly going to come in anyway? Or are we gonna say you can't come in and we're still gonna have those same exploitation problems? That's like really the dichotomy I see with the immigration issue. I think we secure the border and then also regulate corporations, but we'll agree to disagree on this one. We're going to have to wrap there. That does it for us this week on Rising. Jessica, it was a real pleasure co-hosting with you again this Friday. As always, thanks, Amber. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in to Rising, and we'll see you next week.